Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is December 5th of 2012. Tonight, our guest is Ogi Ogas. He is the author of the book, A Billion Wicked Thoughts, and it is about internet, the internet and about pornography on the internet, what people do with it. Uh, we're going to get right to that in a minute. Before we start, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge, a lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, Ogi Ogas, is with us right now. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm quite excellent. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about your book to start with. And, and you did a lot of research. And I want to start by asking about the research methodology. What kind of data did you gather? How did you gather it? Um, what did you do? Sure. So... We tried to get our hands on as much online data as we could that revealed people's sexual behaviors and sexual desires. So the reason we uh, attempted this is historically, sex researchers have not been able to get good data, good insight into people's true sexual tastes and sexual behaviors because, of course, people keep this very private. And the usual way that sex researchers try to figure this out is do surveys just by asking people, to tell them what they were interested in or what aroused them or what behaviors they did. But they would never be able to verify this uh, for themselves. And there were many things that people just would never be willing to share. But with the advent of the Internet, for the first time, we can get a very clear picture into what people are actually doing because through Internet data, we can see what they're clicking on, what they're purchasing, what they're downloading, what they're reading, what they're looking at. And we can finally get you know, a window into people's true sexual taste. So what we did was we got as many different kinds of online data as we could. So some of the more important kinds, uh, we looked at uh, searches, the searches that people entered into search engines. We also looked at individual search history, so what a person searched for over a period of time, over a period of three months. Uh, we looked at downloads. We, looked, we downloaded actually um, a million different erotic videos and analyzed the content. We downloaded a million different erotic stories and analyzed their content. Uh, we looked at the million most popular websites in the world and figured out which of those million most popular websites were erotic sites and then used that to determine which kinds of erotic material was the most popular, got the most traffic all around the world. Uh, so we, did, uh, we also looked at, uh, we got our hands on more than 10,000 different romance novels uh, in digital format and analyzed the text uh, so really, we, we got a great variety uh, of different kinds of data. It wasn't, many people think that we just looked at searches. We certainly did look at searches, but we looked at many other kinds of data, too, to try to get a complete picture of men and women's sexual habits. And uh, really, it was just uh, incredibly uh, surprising in, uh, what we ended up finding. 
Um, well, some people are going to be wondering, uh, every time I do a search on Google, is this guy, Ogi Ogus, going to be uh, <laughs> uh, looking over my shoulder to see what porno I'm looking at? Well, I'd rather there there's going to be some people looking over your shoulder. Not not me, most likely, but um, uh, the truth is there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of companies that try to install different hidden uh, search bars or little uh, cookies or different kinds of things that are collecting information about your searches. So really, anything you're entering in your computer, it's an almost sure thing that somebody somewhere uh, is analyzing that. Usually not for your sexual <laughs> behaviors. It usually turns to mind for other reasons. But uh, you know, the fact is, we live in a world now. Anything we do online, there's, there's, you should never consider it to be private. Mm-hmm. So I, I was reading your book, and I think, if I recall, one of the things that you looked at specifically was Dogpile. I think there was some AOL data, and uh, you looked at Alexa, too, I believe. So those are the, the, the three most useful data sets uh, that we kept coming back to again and again because it just they, they revealed so much. So uh, Dogpile is a particular search engine. Uh, I know it sounds uh, a bit obscene if you've never heard of Dogpile before, but it's just a meta search engine, which means if you enter searches into it, it collects results from all the other search engines, including Google, Yahoo, and Bing. And uh, so we collected every search that was entered into that search engine for an entire year. Actually, I think we ended up getting about 99.5% of all the searches that were entered for an entire year. So that gave us you know, a sense of uh, the English, it's an English language search engine. So in the entire English language world, all the sexual searches that were entered over the course of a year. Uh, another data set that we relied on heavily was uh, America Online because they released individual search histories over a period of three months. You could see what more than half a million different people on AOL uh, searched for. And this allows you to see how people's searches change over time or how often they search for content or uh, if uh, you know, men and women search for different kinds of content. It, it allowed us to get a lot more uh, insight into people's uh, sexual search habits. And then the Alexa list, that Alexa is a web traffic company that analyzes the traffic to different websites, and that's the source of the million most popular websites. They, they, they're constantly updating a list of the million most popular websites in the world on a weekly basis. And so we use that list uh, on a day in 2010, we visited all million of the most popular websites in the world and then figured out which ones of those were sexual websites. It turned out there was about um, Roughly about 35,000 sites uh, in, in the million that were uh, erotic sites, and that became our what we call the uh, Alexa adult list, a list basically of the most popular erotic websites in the world, and then we did further analysis on those websites. Now, the AOL data, if I recall, um, they collected that at AOL for three months, and then they had to stop because they got in some trouble with it. <laughs> That's right. It's sometimes considered one of the biggest business disasters of all time. They they uh, thought they were, uh, the truth is they thought they were um, donating something to science. They thought they were, uh, they, they thought they were benefiting science and trying to be a good neighbor, uh, a good corporate neighbor by releasing this data into the public so that scientists and researchers could use it to learn things. But uh, they, thought they, were, they thought that they had anonymized it, and they tried to anonymize it. It's just that if you have a person's search history for over three months, you know, no matter how much you try to doctor it or, or mask their identity, uh, it's very hard when you have that level of detail about some of these search histories not to kind of figure out uh, who someone might be. And so a lot of the people who were in, that, uh, in the data, it turned out people figured out who they were. 
And that's why there was such a backlash because basically you just can't be anonymous uh, if you're showing somebody your, your search history. Um, and so there was just immense backlash. The guy that was responsible for releasing the data got fired, and it was uh, just a complete public relations disaster for AOL. But I've got to say, as a, as a scientist, it was truly one of the most wonderful things because uh, nobody else, ever since the AOL disaster, nobody else has released any kind of data like this into the public, and they probably never will ever again. So uh, this snapshot we have from 2006 is probably as good as it's going to get. <laughs> <laughs> well, the scientists sometimes like to get a hold of things that, you know, not everybody wants to have them get a hold yeah. of. Um, so when you looked at, like, a million movies, you didn't sit down and look at a million porn movies yourself, did you? How did you do sometimes, that? It sometimes, felt like, it sometimes felt like I did. I, got, <laughs> you know, I, I watched far more. You know, I watched far more pornographic content and read way more erotic stories and, and romance novels than, than, I, than I care to admit. And I'm, I'm glad that period, <laughs> that period of time is over. But uh, no, we had um, we used a bunch of different methods. We had some we had some visual uh, some image uh, analysis software that we used. We also used a lot of auxiliary data, um, like people uh, put tags. They they rated videos, they would tag videos, they put comments on videos. So there was a lot of other data that went along with the video itself that we also used to analyze. So um, it wasn't just us sitting there <laughs> looking at a million uh, different videos. Okay, now let's start looking at some of the results. I mean, um, you know, uh, people have thought, um, you know, we've had reports from Kinsey, from Kraft Ebbing, Psychopathia Sexualis, of uh, yes. various things. And some of them we thought were quite rare, but I think that you found some of them, at least on the Internet, are not, are, are actually much more common than people supposed. So well, one, I'm going to ask you first about uh, age ranges. Um, are there specific age ranges, ranges of women that men like to look at? Sure. The most, uh, no surprise that the most common age that men are searching for is young women. In fact, youth is the single most popular kind of erotica, the single most common descriptor of erotica that men search for. Uh, they usually search for teens is, is by far the most common age range, or just plain young, uh, sometimes uh, using terms like Lolita. Uh, underage. So definitely uh, men search for young women uh, more than anything else. But what was a surprise was the amount of interest in older women. Um, so I think people knew that there was some interest in what are called MILFs, which is a mother I'd like to fornicate with, or sometimes called cougars. But nobody realized just how popular uh, these women are. These are women in their 30s or in their 40s. And the amount of interest in older women was much, much higher than anyone predicted. And then what was even more surprising is there's substantial interest all around the world in every culture we looked at in much older women, usually called granny porn. So these are women in their 50s, 60s, sometimes even in their 70s. Uh, guys are searching for this material. Guys are interested in this material. And that was something that just nobody seemed to be aware of at all. Yeah, what were the two peaks? There were two peaks of age, as I recall. Yes, both very, very surprising and, and, and a bit disconcerting, too, to, to most people. So the, the, there's a biggest peak uh, in terms of specific ages that men search for. When, when men type in a search in the search engine, the specific age they search for the most is 13-year-olds. And obviously, most people find that uh, very disconcerting. Uh, but was another surprise was that there's another peak at age 50. So uh, most searches are clustered around age 13. So there's a ton of searches for age 
15, 16, 17, 18. And then there's quite a few searches for 50-year-olds and a little less number of searches for 40-year-olds and 60-year-olds. But for some reason, 50 is another peak, and that was you know, another big surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's kind of, uh, you know, I think you mentioned when people aren't, aren't looking for a specific age, it's that they're looking more for vanilla porn. Just uh, any age will do, you know, the, the average, you know, adult. That, that, that's right. I, I, you know, people sometimes wonder why there's so few searches for, say, a 21-year-old or 23-year-old. And I think that's because the majority of porn features women aged 20 to 28, roughly, in that, in that age range, in their 20s. And so there's no need to specify that age because if you just go look at most mainstream porn sites, most models are going to be in that age already. But that's just a hypothesis. You know, we don't really know for sure why uh, there's so few searches for that specific age range and so much more for age for teenagers and, uh, and women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Well, that's a very reasonable hypothesis, you know. Um, I'm not going to deny that I have looked at porn on the Internet, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> you and 80% of other males in the population. <laughs> and we know that age range, uh, that, that age range already pops up automatically. That's yeah. The first thing pops up, 20 to 30-year-old, you know, good-looking babes. And then if you want to see something different, you have to specify. Exactly. So, so they, that's what I think is going on, uh, too. And, you know, you're not going to come across a 13-year-old or a 50-year-old unless you, you specify that. So that's why that's the, the two most common ages. Okay, I said the two most common. 13-year-olds most common, and then 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Those are all also very, very common too, close to the 13-year-old range. It's just that there's another peak over at age 50 as well. And uh, do you recall offhand uh, what percentage of searches uh, specify age? Uh, Quite, it's the single most common uh, adjective, the single most common qualifier, uh, you might say the single most common supercategory uh, of sexual searches. If you combine all the different searches for age, so, you know, if you combine together searches for young, teen, granny, MILF, uh, it's the number one uh, supercategory uh, that was entered into the dog pal search engine. And I believe it's, it's either number one or number two on um, the Alexa adult list. And number one or number two on the uh, on AOL, but in each case, it's just extreme. Overall, the single most common kind of uh, sexual interest in terms of if you lump together all the different kinds of uh, categories, age is just so prominent in men's mind when it comes to thinking about uh, sexual content. What are some of the other specifiers that people look for? Um, certainly, uh, gay versus straight. Uh, or if you're, that's more the case if you're gay. If you're straight, you never have to specify that you're looking for straight stuff. <laughs> but uh, gay versus straight is, is a huge one. Uh, the second biggest one for men is uh, anatomy. So if you lump together all the different anatomical searches, that would come into uh, second place after age. So if you, if you lump together all the searches for breasts and butts and feet and, and penises and, and what have you, uh, if you put all those together, they usually come in uh, second place. Uh, another big uh, supercategory that's uh, very much underappreciated is uh, domination and submission. And these are uh, not just BDSM. BDSM would be part of that. But any kind of erotica that features uh, power roles where one person has the power and the other person doesn't. So, for example, uh, drunk porn. That's porn where guys get uh, women drunk, and then when they're in a drunk state, 
drunken state, they take advantage of them and have sex with them. So certainly not BDSM, but that would be considered a kind of domination submission porn. So if you combine all the erotica together that features a strong domination or submission theme, that's also a huge, huge category and very much underappreciated. Um, how about costumes? I mean, did you did you separate out an overlap between uh, BDSM and costumes? Because there's a lot of overlap there, of course. Sure. Well, we looked at you know cosplay um, as a category, and also uh, furries, which is a special kind of uh, costume. And the truth is that they're, they're they're in there. I mean, they're 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 a significant interest, but definitely not near the top of the list. Uh, they're, they're in there. They're solid categories, but definitely not one of the top ones People, in terms of people dressing up or wearing costumes. Solid, but not one of the top ones. Okay. You mentioned penises. And do, yes. stra- do straight men search for penises? That was certainly one of our biggest and most titillating uh, findings is just how popular penises are with heterosexual men. And... Uh, Kind of now that we're used to the data, it, it, it kind of seems obvious and it seems strange that nobody's ever acknowledged this and that scientists and academics seem to have overlooked this because uh, now it just seems really obvious. But um, one of the most popular genres of pornography, again, in every culture that we looked at, is large penis porn. So uh, you think about this. If you're not familiar with it, you know, you might imagine that guys are just looking at p- pictures of penises and that's not what's going on at all. Uh, in this kind of pornography, the emphasis is usually on uh, the woman's reaction to the penis. So there's certainly large penises, but uh, it features a woman marveling or being surprised or astonished or, or afraid uh, or uh, uh, delighted or, <laughs> or scared of uh, this, the size of the, an immense penis. But this kind of pornography is extremely common, very well developed, and uh, just incredibly popular. Just Russia, Japan, India... Uh, Brazil, you know, every country we looked at, uh, very, very popular. And that brings us to uh, something related, which is transsexual porn with with shemales, as they're called sometimes. Um, And who likes to look at this? Gay men? Straight men? Uh, So the audience for uh, transsexual porn, it's it's usually called shemale. I know some people find shemale the best way to describe this kind of pornography. Uh, I always think it does injustice to call transsexual porn. It does injustice to actual transsexuals. Um, but this is pornography that features uh, characters or models or, or animation with the body of a woman and a penis, usually a large penis. And it turns out the audience for this is almost exclusively heterosexual men. Uh, there are some bisexual men that are fans of it, but no uh, gay men. You know, usually people think that, oh, it must be gay men watching this stuff. No, gay men have no interest at all in this stuff. And the, vast, the biggest uh, portion of the audience is just straight men. And uh, the popularity... First, it's a little bit surprising that it's so popular with straight men, but the fact that it's one of the top interests uh, in every country we looked at, that was certainly a big surprise. That wasn't something that anybody predicted. Uh, one of the things I'm sure our audience is wondering is how do, how do you tell the men looking at the, this transsexual porn are straight? So we didn't obviously ourselves go and interview every person that's looking at this stuff. However, we talked to... Uh, performers, female performers, you know, from, from female porn movies. We talked to webmasters who run the sites, and, you know, we analyze comments that people post uh, in response to female videos. And also we looked at the uh, search histories uh, of people who search for female porn. So 
bunch of different sources of data, and every one of them came back that it's an audience of heterosexual men. So the people running the sites that are making money, you know, they're trying to sell this stuff and make money off of it. They all say they're selling it to heterosexual guys. Usually, uh, they said that they think they're usually uh, married guys in their experience. When you talk to the performers themselves, you know, who, who are getting fan mail and, you know, interact with their fan base, they're saying it's straight guys that they're talking to. When you look at the search histories, um, so you look for somebody that, you know, say search, did 10 searches for Shima porn, and then you look, okay, what else did they search for? Um, they almost never are searching for other gay, they're not searching for gay stuff. Though they might search for, you know, busty teen, busty teen girls and then search for females for a while. So uh, in every source of data we looked at, there was no evidence that uh, this was popular among gay men. And then on gay sites, you go to gay sites, you'll never find an ad for female porn. You'll never find a link to female porn. Um, uh, also, there was actually a real-world study. Uh, some researchers, I believe, I believe it was at Northwest University. It was somewhere in Illinois. Um, they actually went to a female bar in uh, Chicago and uh, actually interviewed the customers there. I, I can't believe they actually did this. If I was a customer in a place like that, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't talk to any scientists. But, um, and they found that uh, 70, I think about 70% of the patrons uh, said that they were heterosexual men and 30% roughly said that they were bisexual men, but none of them said that they were gay men. Um, I'm just curious, uh, was there any difference or did you look at all at cross-dressers as opposed to transsexuals, which is to say, you know, the, the, the shemales are the ones with augmented breasts and cross-dressers would not be. Did you right, look so we didn't, we, yeah. we didn't look, we only looked at what people were searching for. So we don't know, uh, we don't know what people who are cross-dressers preferred. You know, we don't know what people who are cross-dressers, what they were looking for or doing or, or downloading. We didn't. We don't have any insight into that. I mean, we, we have insight into people who are looking for photos of cross-dressers, for example. It's mm -hmm. actually kind of, that's uh, fairly rare. There's not, there's not much interest in looking for uh, material on cross-dressers, and, and erotic material on cross-dressers, and that's what we looked at. So, um, but in terms of, you know, the interests of an actual cross-dresser, uh, that I'm afraid we have no insight into. Yeah, that's what I was actually wondering was because uh, you have a lot of people searching for transsexuals, females, not many searches on crossdressers. That's right. Very few, relatively few, I'd say. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. How about size? Do you, some people like skinny women, big fat women, tall women, short women? Uh, that was another uh, that was another big surprise. It was uh, the popularity of overweight women. They're, they're usually called in erotica, they're usually called BBW, which stands for big, beautiful women, and this is another one where people kind of knew that was out there, but nobody realized just how popular it is, and really one of the biggest surprises that is that we found that men are three times more likely to search for fat women than search for skinny women. Now, let me clarify right away that most men, most men prefer healthy weight women, uh, but given the choice between an overweight woman and an underweight woman, the vast majority of men will prefer an overweight woman. But again, men prefer uh, healthy weight the most. But everybody thought there was going to be a tendency to go skinnier and skinnier and that skinny would be more popular than fat. And it turned out that's not true at all. That there's definitely a bias towards the heavy. And overall, the, just the amount of interest in overweight women uh, is very, very high. It's certainly one of the more popular 
uh, genres of uh, erotica. And again, worldwide in every country, it's not something specific to the West. Uh, even in, uh, I think less of an interest actually, less of an interest in Asia. It's still popular. It's not quite as popular in the Asian countries uh, as it is in the West and in, in Russia and in South America and Africa, um, but still, still uh, prominent. Uh, did you have a hypothesis why people might be, why men might be interested in larger women? So we we usually try to start out our explanations in, in evolutionary biology. Sometimes evolutionary theory uh, gets things wrong, and, and sometimes it's misguided. But we think this is a good trying to explain why men like heavier weight women. Uh, evolutionary theory can offer a lot, and so evolutionary theory suggests there's something called. Uh, Asymmetric fitness, asymmetric fitness. And what this means is that sometimes uh, when natural selection operates on a, on a particular feature, that one side uh, is more favorable than the other. And let me explain what I mean by that. In this case, with weight, it turns out that a woman having an extra pound is more favorable than a woman having one less pound. And the reason is because the skinnier a woman gets, uh, the less healthy she becomes, and if she becomes skinny enough, she'll even stop uh, ovulating, and she will no longer have the ability to have kids. And so uh, if uh, you have a sexual interest in skinny women, well, you might end up being attracted to women who just can't have kids. But through most of our evolutionary history, a woman who was able to add a few extra pounds meant she was healthier because she had access to more food and, and better nutrition, and that was much harder to achieve during most of our evolutionary history than it is today. So uh, through most of our early days as human beings, any guy that was more attracted to a woman with a little more weight in her bones was more likely to end up with a healthy, white, healthy and fertile wife. How about uh, little people? How about midget porn? How popular is that? That's another one where it's, it exists and, and it's solid, but it's not definitely not one of the top ones. It, it, it's, Certainly, I'd say, I can't recall, but I think it's like 70s or 80s, 70s or 80s most popular genre. And, and when you get that low on a list in terms of the ranking of the popularity, things blur a lot. But uh, So there's people out there that like it, but uh, relative to some of these other things we're talking about, it's, it's much, much less of an interest. Okay. Well, we've been talking about men a lot, but how about women? What's sort of things do women like? Do they like straight-up pornography like men, or do they like erotica, romance novels? Tell me about that. So one question people always have is, what kind of porn do women like? You know, what kind of porn do women like? And you also hear uh, quite often in, in mainstream media, especially by um, women's groups, is this idea that if only people would make more female-friendly pornography, uh, instead of misogynistic pornography, instead of all this graphic pornography, if more people would make uh, couples-oriented erotica that was softer and more relationship-focused, well, then more women would be interested in watching pornography. And the reason they don't is because the existing pornography is so graphic. So these are two uh, commonly expressed thoughts uh, about pornography. And it took us a little while to kind of f to figure this out, to tease this apart. And in fact, we did not figure all of this out by the time we published the book. So this is not actually in our book. But what we've now determined is, and we feel pretty confident about this, is, is the following fact, that most women are not interested in porn. Somewhere only about one-fourth, uh, maybe less, uh, we highly doubt it's as high as one in three, 
uh, it looks like about one in four, maybe one in five women actually do like pornography. But here's the thing. Of those women that do like pornography, most of them want to look at hardcore stuff. Most of them want to look at the same stuff the guys look at. And that explains all the, the data that we've found, which is there, the truth is there actually is a lot of so-called female-friendly, so-called feminist porn out there that features relationships. It's not so graphic, uh, you know, where there's less of a domination and submission element to it. There is plenty of porn like that available. It's just that women aren't interested. Nobody's interested in that stuff. <laughs> and there's been plenty of websites that have been trying to cash in on that for a long time, and they just cannot find the formula to get women to pay for that stuff or to visit this stuff. It just doesn't happen. Uh, there's only three websites right now, I believe, that are profitable, uh, that deliver porn for women and try to make a buck off of it. Uh, Shush.com, which has been around for more than 20 years, For the Girls, which has also been around for a long time, and uh, one, of, uh, one of the relatively new ones, I think Bright Desire, I think that's what it's called. But these are the only ones that have had any kind of significant success uh, peddling this stuff. And they, all three of them have... Uh, traffic that I think is like under 100,000, I believe it might even be as low as 50,000 visitors a month. So really, really low traffic. And this is it. These are three sites compared to like there's thousands of sites that are profitable uh, showing porn to men, uh, to men's taste. And the bigger sites, the tube sites, they get millions and millions of visitors, sometimes as high as 80 million visitors a month, you know, compared to 50,000. Uh, it's an enormous gap. And when you look at it, there's millions of women going to Pornhub. So there's millions of women going to the hardcore porn sites and there's sites out there that have the soft core stuff. It's just they're not getting any traffic. They're not getting any, any eyeballs. So, uh, but the fact is that most women don't like uh, porn and certainly don't search for it. You know, we used AOL data set to see what women were searching for, and it was really hard. In our data set, I think we counted about something like 12%, uh, 10 to 15% of women were looking for uh, visual erotica. Uh, so very, very low numbers. And... This is uh, so you say women aren't interested in visual pornography. So what are they interested in? Well, they're interested in stories. They're interested in text. Certainly, the single biggest erotic artifact for women is the ro romance novel. Romance novel very very popular in every country. It's not just certainly the romance. The romance novel is highly developed in the West, but also popular in Eastern countries, and they have their own versions of uh, romance novels uh, in the East as well. And the number of women who buy romance novels in North America is just about very similar to the number of men that are looking at online pornography. So those overall figures are, are very, very comparable. And when you look at what women are doing online, in addition to buying a lot of romantic ebooks, <laughs> they are reading and writing stories. When women finally for the first time had access to the Internet and had access to creating their own erotica, creating their own a lot of communities. Guys were all creating tube sites and video sites and image sites. Well, what did women do? They created something called fan fiction, which is amateur stories written by women for an audience of women that mostly features romantic and erotic stories. So women just created these communities around storytelling featuring characters they liked from uh, popular books and movies and, and TV shows. For example, the most, common, the most popular fan fiction is uh, Harry Potter and, and Twilight, uh, Lord of the Rings, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, stories like that. And this is what, when women had the chance to create their own erotica, this is what they did spontaneously. There was not really any precedent for this uh, before the Internet. So uh, that's what's so fascinating is that, you know, women did not 
go into the internet and start creating porn. They went the internet and started creating these communities of storytelling. Okay. I remember, uh, well, there's two things I'm thinking of right now. One, you discussed the idea of uh, Viagra for women and how it was not successfully discovered. And <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So it, it comes down to a really important biological to a neural difference between the male brain and the female brain, the male sexual brain and the female sexual brain. And it's this. In the male brain, physical arousal and psychological arousal are one and the same. If a man has an erection, you can usually be very confident that he's aroused. And similarly, if a guy is aroused, you can be pretty confident he's going to have an erection. And that seems pretty clear, except that's not the case with women. In the female sexual brain, physical arousal and psychological arousal are distinct. A woman can be physically turned on, but mentally turned off. And for a guy, that just sounds really strange. It's really hard to understand it, but... Uh, one, there was one really elegant study. There's been lots and lots of evidence to, to show this, and lots of studies that have showed this in different ways, but certainly the most elegant study uh, showed women, uh, showed women and men a uh, whole bunch of different kinds of pornographic material, including straight porn, gay porn, and even bestiality porn. And uh, it turned out that you know, the guys, the straight guys, they only got turned on mentally and physically by uh, the straight porn. You know, if you showed a straight guy the gay porn, he didn't get aroused mentally or physically. If you showed him, you know, the animals didn't get aroused mentally or physically. But it was different for the women. For the women, they got aroused by, physically aroused, they got physically aroused, their body got aroused by just about everything. The straight, gay, animals, everything, uh, they got physically aroused, much to their uh, discomfort. But mentally, they reported only getting aroused by uh, the straight pornography, and, and a few of them by the uh, by the lesbian pornography as well. Um, so what this shows is there's a disconnect in the female brain, and we can have a pretty solid evolution, pretty solid evolutionary explanation for that too, which is that for a man, uh, if he's physically turned on by a woman, he has every reason to try to pursue her and, and, and have sex with her. But for a woman, it's important for her just because she's turned on by a man or finds a man to be attractive, it's not a good idea for her to have sex with every guy, attractive guy she comes across. She needs to hold off and make sure that he's going to stick around and take care of her because obviously uh, the risk if you're a woman having sex is that you're going to get pregnant and that's such a costly enterprise in terms of the pregnancy and child rearing. The woman is the one that has to pay all those costs, so it behooves a woman to be much more cautious and selective uh, with who she has sex with. So that's probably the reason why there's this this stark dichotomy in a woman's brain in terms of physical arousal and psychological arousal. So back to your question about why isn't there a Viagra that works on women? Well, for guys, all you need to do is get him physically aroused. All you need to do is give him an erection. If he has an erection, he's pretty much going to be interested in sex. But with a woman, it's not that hard to turn her on physically. There's, there are drugs that will physically arouse a woman but it's not going to touch her mental arousal. So she'll just be physically aroused and mentally turned off and still won't have interest in having sex. So it's a, they need to develop a drug that somehow turns her on mentally and physically. And so far, uh, they haven't done it. There's some, there have been some promising leads I've heard uh, from the pharmaceutical industry that there are some things that seem to be going after a woman's cortex that do seem to suggest that they might cause 
mental arousal, but it's definitely a much more complicated, require a much more complicated uh, drug than, than Viagra. Okay, when you were looking at romance novels and uh, this fan fiction and all this, did you find a rape fantasy was common? Oh yes. So it, you know, that was something that was fairly widely known even before we did our research. There has been a lot of research that's shown that uh, rape fantasies are very common with women. I think after we did our research, we'd even say that the the rape fantasy, or more generally, uh, the female submissive fantasy, uh, n- not just you know, say rape fantasy. Imagine you know some uh, thug, uh, you know, taking a woman in a dark corner and you know physically ravishing her against her will, and, and and that's part of it. That can be part of it, but it's also just you know you're in a nightclub and just some random guy throws you over the table and starts having sex with you, or that you know, you're a stripper and you're uh, suddenly taken into the back room by a bunch of guys that are watching you and, and, and have sex with you. So it's not just uh, kind of brutal physical rape, but any kind of sort of a strong man taking, you know, taking you against your will. Um, we didn't see that's normal. That, that's the norm. That's, that's entirely natural. That's not an unusual interest. It is the mainstream normal interest for the female sexual brain because this theme, this fantasy of female submission runs through all of female erotica. It runs through romance novels. Uh, outright rape, where the hero raped the heroine, was incredibly common in romance novels through the 70s and 80s. It wasn't until political correctness started in the 90s that they uh, finally started taking out rape scenes. But with the rise of uh, paranormal romance, like Twilight, they found new ways, authors have found new ways of introducing rape again through su- supernatural means. You know, a good example of this is... Um, uh, in Twilight, or, or, or any of the many romance stories these days that involve vampires. Uh, True Blood is another one. Uh, they can write rapes in these stories in terms of vampires sucking a woman's blood. And the way these passages are often written, it's very much, very similar to the way rape scenes used to be written with, you know, teeth penetrating the skin and her, the woman shuddering and, get, and she resists him, but he is so much powerful. He takes her in any way and sucks her juices out. I mean, uh, the idea of a woman giving in to a powerful man uh, just runs through all of women's erotica, uh, again, throughout the world. It's certainly one of the most basic uh, turn-ons for, for women. certainly remains one that <laughs> causes a lot of hand-wringing and discomfort. It's one of those things where, you know, her rational brain uh, rebels against it, and there's a lot of discussion and talk about it, but, but at the same time, it's definitely a surefire way to, to, to turn women on. Well, it's interesting. The vampires are a reprise again of uh, Dracula. In uh, I think it was 1930, it was released, and you know you could you certainly couldn't show a rape scene in a film uh, in 1930. You know the Hayes office was in full swing, the censors, but um, that was an extremely powerfully erotic movie for its time. It's, I think that its huge popularity comes from that same thing. Oh, you know what? Uh, that's I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. They did, and I know they consciously shot some of the scenes in those early early vampire movies. They consciously shot them in that way to be erotic, and and, and precisely the way you're describing. That's right. You know, I need to start including that in my talks. <laughs> Thank you. You give me you give me something new I can use. It, it might even be true with Bram Stoker's uh, original novel of Dracula back in the uh, late 1800s, I believe it was published, where there it was very taboo to talk about rape, I believe. So. Yes. Well, I'd have to look into that, but I'm pretty confident that, that you're right in the, early, the earliest vampire movies during 
an age that was a, a sneaky way to show rape scenes. Yeah, definitely. You know, if you look at Nosferatu, which was the the German one in the Silent Days, right. in, the, in the Silent Days, anything goes, and it's really not erotic at all. But uh, Dracula with Lugosi, it's all eroticism. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Good point. So let's not, let's not lose our track now. Um, uh, oh, in what? Okay, I remember you mentioned in the fan fiction. Um, in the romance novels, it's often the billionaire hero or the handsome man, the, the pirate captain, is the one that rapes the woman. But you said in the fan fiction that you got really nasty, ugly little buggers. The fan fiction has a much greater variety uh, of, of rape scenes. And you have everything from, you know, outright torture and humiliation and, and you know, blood, you know uh, bloody scenes to um, just kind of forceful seduction, you know, romantic seductions. And one way that fan fiction kind of, so I think a lot of women certainly feel discomfort, even as they're turned on, they also simultaneously feel discomfort reading rape scenes. And one way, clever literary way that women have got around this is through something called slash fiction. And a slash does, refers to the punctuation mark, the slash punctuation mark. It sounds like it's like a horror movie or something, but no, it has nothing to do with that. Um, but slash fiction are stories about two men. And it's two men who fall in love and then usually have sex with each other. And so you say, oh, it's, it's a gay story. Well, it's kind of gay, except the two men are usually heterosexual. So, uh, for example, it might be Captain Kirk and, and Mr. Spock. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Clearly two heterosexual characters, but they end up falling in love and, and having sex in slash fiction story. And why I say this allows women to get around their discomfort with rape scenes is, well, if you have a guy raping another guy, uh, women don't get too upset about that. There's no, they don't feel there's a victim. They don't identify with a woman who's being you know, hurt or taken advantage of. So it allows women to enjoy the theme of rape and the theme of submission, which is the arousal without the discomfort of seeing, oh, there's a, there's a woman in distress, a woman being victimized here. So I believe that's one of the reasons that uh, slash fiction is so popular, is it allows women to explore, <laughs> you know, some of these scenes that would be uncomfortable to read about if it was a woman. Yeah, I think sometimes they also call it slash dot. Um, I encountered, I, I read one site which said that the Captain Kirk one was actually the original one or the archetype that the rest of them all evolved from. That's right. That's right. The very first fan fiction stories were evidently uh, Kirk Spot. The very first slash, the very first slash stories out were, were Kirk Spot. Um, now let's continue. Uh, with men, men we uh, know what uh, they're aroused by. We saw certain age groups, uh, big sizes or regular sizes, um, butts and tits, and all those good things that people <laughs> search for. Uh, what kind of things uh, is it that women are aroused by in men? So, uh, power and social status, number one. Uh, more than anything, women want a man who's either has a position of authority and strength and, or, or leadership, or uh, so some of the most common um, heroes in, in erotic stories and romance novels are billionaires, millionaire sheiks, CEOs, generals, kings, knights, uh, doctors, rock stars, uh, people like that. Though it's not necessary for you to have a lot of power if you have a good physical authority. So some, sometimes soldiers or, you know, lone swordsmen 
or uh, bodyguards. So not necessarily wealthy men or powerful men in terms of uh, social status, but uh, or cowboys is another good example. Uh, men who are, are physical and very confident about themselves and, and still kinds of uh, alpha males. By far, that's the, the, the single most uh, essential criteria that women are looking for uh, in, their, in their erotic uh, heroes. So that would be the equivalent of, <laughs> I'd say that the mobile sexual interest uh, for the man is a, a busty teen, and the modal sexual interest for a woman is a uh, is a billionaire with uh, skeletons in his closet. Uh, the other thing that women want in their hero is a sense that he's emotionally closed off or an emotional virgin, and it's up to the heroine to help him get in touch with his emotional self, which usually means him finding out that he loves her and declaring his love for the very first time uh, for her. So women want to get to know a guy. They want there to be secrets that they have to figure out, mysteries that they have to solve about a man, uh, or some, some secret in his past that he has to confront, and only she can help him confront it and overcome it. So that's another essential quality, very different from what men are looking for <laughs> in a woman. Uh, and men have, would prefer that they don't have much of a personality <laughs> when it comes to the erotic experience. <laughs> Yeah, I think you mentioned the 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 women often like a man that's uh, had sex with hundreds of women, but she's the one that he falls in love with. Right, it's it's not ne- necessary at all for him to be a sexual virgin. In fact, it's usually preferable for him to have a lot of sexual experience. But he must be a romantic virgin. He can't have ever loved anybody else. That's that's absolute, an absolute no no. <laughs> the same way a, a guy doesn't want a, a wife who's slept around a lot, you know. Uh, in, in the female fantasy, she doesn't want a man that's uh, loved a lot. <laughs> but, yeah, he can be as physically promiscuous as he wants before he meets her, uh, as long as uh, he's never fallen in love before. Or it's okay if he fell in love with some awful, horrible woman and had a horrible experience and then never loved again after that. That's okay, too. <laughs> Dan, what is uh, the Omega male, the, the low man on the totem pole like? So, yeah, you won't find any... Uh, they're usually called so there's betas, beta there's alphas who are the the leaders. They're the most common type of hero. There's a beta who is uh, a man without authority or a man without status. Uh, so a, a good beta, example of beta would be like an accountant or a, a software programmer or a, a mid-level manager. You won't find any of those as heroes in romance novels. Though they're extremely rare. Um, the mega is a loner, so. Uh, this would be like a, a thief or someone who uh, does things entirely on their own. Now, it's distinguished from an, from an alpha. The, the key thing about alphas is they have to be leaders. They have to be somebody who other men respect and who other women uh, find attractive. But omegas are not necessarily men who other men respect. and They're not necessarily leaders. They can be smart. They can be talented. Um, but they're not... Uh, but they're not men who are natural leaders. And so those are extremely rare, too, uh, compared to alphas, but you, you do find more omegas in romance novels than you would with betas. Okay. Um, I want to move on to a new topic now. Um, do you, did your research shed any light? Do, does, uh, does looking at Internet pornography lead people to seek more extreme pornography? So that's a... Common uh, 
belief about uh, pornography. This has been expressed since the 1960s, really. The idea that if you watch pornography, it's going to dull your senses, dull your sexual appetite, so that you need increasingly extreme or more intense or more unusual pornography in order to provide the same stimulation. A lot of women have this fear about guys watching pornography. Uh, a lot of feminists express this concern, but also uh, plenty of male academics as well. Uh, you'll, you'll hear this hypothesized. Uh, uh, sometimes called a slippery slope hypothesis that as soon as you start watching any porn, it's a slippery slope that's going to make you want ever more uh, intense and bizarre and, and extreme pornography. So we finally could get you know, a reasonable answer to this by looking at the AOL data. We could see what people search for you know, over a period of time, and we can see, first of all, how many people are simply searching for extreme content, and then how many people are searching for just a wide variety of extreme content, or, and how many people seem to be getting, you know, looking at more and more intense content uh, as time goes on. And the prediction is, the prediction was that there should be a lot of these kinds of people. That's certainly the fear and, and the accusation that we hear about, but the truth was, uh, it's not true at all. It turns out the vast majority of people search for the same thing over and over again. Most men have a small set of sexual interests, and they just keep searching within that small set. They don't change. They don't search for increasingly extreme stuff. Uh, you just don't see it. In fact, less than 1% of people who search for sex, and again, this is not 1% of the population. This is 1% of the people, less than 1% of the people that are searching for sex uh, could be considered these promiscuous searchers, these kinds of people that are searching for all kinds of extreme content. They exist. They're out there, exactly as people have suggested, which is extremely rare, less than 1% of the population. And what's so curious is that I can tell you, having looked at a lot of these, they really jump off the page. They, they qualitate, these search histories are qualitatively different. They search for, these individuals do search for all kinds of intense and unusual and extreme stuff. Um, but just the patterns of these searches, which is very different than uh, the vast majority of other searchers. So it really seems like something else is going on uh, with them. Now, you know, since we don't have a, this, these searchers as a population that we can study and talk to, we don't really know if they've always been interested in this stuff, you know, if, if it was only after they watched pornography that they started doing this. Uh, we just don't know. But certainly the fact that it's such a tiny percentage uh, of the overall searchers uh, it shows that they're, they're, the slippery slope hypothesis has got to be false. Uh, otherwise, we would just see a lot more of this. Uh, not, not More than 50% of people search for just one interest over and over uh, again. So, uh, I, I, can, I, can tell you, I can tell you one other thing, too, that's pretty interesting about uh, these promiscuous searchers, uh, these less than 1% that search for all kinds of stuff. There's three sexual interests. We call them the unholy trinity. There's three sexual interests that always seem to appear in their searches, and that's incest, bestiality, and granny porn. Basically, if you find somebody that's searching for all three of those, odds are very high that they're searching for all kinds of uh, extreme and intense stuff, too, not just that. But for some reason, those three just seem to be uh, always in there in, in these individuals that search for everything, granny porn, incest, and bestiality. This something just occurs to me on the top of my head, and you probably didn't research this, uh, but uh, I wonder if uh, since the advent of the Internet, if the, if the porn content has gotten more extreme as the uh, marketers are trying to uh, grab more and more people in, if they don't tend to get more and more extreme porn or not. 
We actually are seeing the opposite. Uh, so there's been this fear, and, and, and often you even hear level that, it, that porn is getting more misogynistic and violent. We're, we're definitely seeing the opposite. One way we can see this is uh, we have some search data from the 90s, uh, AltaVista data, Excite data, if you remember the AltaVista Excite search engines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And back then, uh, bestiality was one of the top 10 searches of all searches, not just top 10 sexual searches, of all searches, bestiality was in the top 10. Today, there's no sexual t terms in the top 10 searches. I don't even think in the top 50 searches uh, last time I looked. But, you know, the, the, the porn searches and sex searches are common, but they're not like one of the top searches. But back in the early days of the Internet, you know, bestiality was like super common. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, re interest and I remember. It was a lot easier. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I remember in the 90s, when I first was searching for porn, I kept getting bumped, kicked into these bestiality sites. I wasn't searching for them, but you know, you click on something, and all of a sudden, boom! All this stuff with those horses and monkeys was popping up. I was like, I wasn't looking for it was, that. It was a lot easier to run into crazier, more extreme stuff in the early days of the internet. I mean, really, what's happened is people try to make a buck, you know, selling this stuff, finding ways to market this stuff, and they figured out. What makes money, and you know, that's why they're they're pretty good nowadays. But the giant tube sites are pretty good at knowing what their people want to look at. I mean, they have access to tons of search data now, and they know what people are clicking on. So um, they have a pretty good sense of what makes money. So you don't see much uh, bestiality uh, on the on the main tube sites, and you see violence towards women. That's another one. So there's a, there's a common myth that there's a lot of violent pornography. Uh, and a lot of pornography featuring violence towards women. Uh, the truth is, you can find it. If, if, you, if that's what you want to look at, you'll be able to find it without too much trouble. But it's a really tiny sliver of the porn that's available. It's certainly not increasing. It's certainly not common. Uh, it's not the, at all dominant or one of the top interests or top genres you'll find on, on tube sites. And we're talking about porn where you know, there's a knife or you know, a woman's hit until she bleeds or... or outright violence towards women. There's certainly plenty of, uh, plenty of porn that features uh, women submitting to men and things like hypnosis porn where girls are hypnotizing and having sex or uh, I mentioned drunk porn, sleep porn where guys sneak in when a girl's sleeping and, and have sex with her. Uh, there's lots of variations like that. And you can say that's violence towards women, but the truth is, you know, when you, when you look at that porn and then compare it to actual porn with violence towards women, it's drastically different and most guys aren't interested and looking at the violent stuff. It's out there, but it's really a tiny sliver. It's certainly not something that's expanding or growing. If anything, it's becoming an ever smaller part of, of the porn that's available. Now, that just reminds me of something that happened when I was at the University of Minnesota oh, a couple decades ago, and there was this big feminist crusade, which it succeeded, but they banned Playboy magazine from sale. Uh, at the bookstore in the University of Minnesota. They banned the sale of it on campus. And their whole thing was um, pornography depicts violence against women. Violence against women, uh, depictions of violence against women cause rape. Therefore, pornography causes rape. And it's like I was sitting there totally aghast, uh, you know, by the, the gaping lack of logic here. Playboy magazine never shows violence against women. No, not at all. <laughs> it's um, the most mild, soft core stuff imaginable. It's very soft core. I mean, I like it, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, absolutely no violence there at all. So why would this it, be? Yeah, I mean, it was. Sorry, it's just. So here's what here's what I think. So this 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 argument's level been level again since the 1960s. And what's so curious is that people have been arguing since the 60s that watching pornography makes guys more likely to commit acts of violence towards women or or rape women or just simply have misogynistic attitudes towards women. Well, you know, they said that in the 60s when porn consisted of driving to a CD section of a downtown city and sitting in a theater with, you know, 50 other guys who <laughs> were masturbating while watching, you know, a 16-millimeter film on the screen. That's what porn consisted of back then. And if you had told somebody in the 1960s that, oh, guess what? We're about to enter a world where there's a 24-hour stream of every porn imaginable streamed for free into your living room where you can watch as much porn as you want all day long, they would imagine that this is a society with no moral compass where there's rapes, you know, ha- happening as a matter of course in the streets and that, uh, you know, a patriarchy where all women were being dominated by sexually aggressive men. And, and we have exactly the opposite. You know, the rapes have gone down uh, since the Internet has come out. The sexual violence against women has gone down since the Internet has come out. Uh, we're living in a far more tolerant and, and less misogynistic society now than, than before the Internet. So we're flooded with pornography more than way more than any other point in history, and yet there's no evidence at all that this is causing men to become more aggressive towards women or, or treat women worse. Uh, uh, there seems to be no correlation at all. Okay. Let's move on to the last topic for the show and then close up because we're a show about addiction. Do you think that there is a Internet addiction, porn addiction, Internet porn addiction? How about those topics? So that, that's a complicated question. And uh, so... I think I think the fear of porn addiction and uh, the statements about the existence of porn addiction are much inflated. Uh, having said that, I think it's certainly possible, and there are individuals I know who feel that they can't stop watching porn. They watch it often, and they want to stop watching it, and they can't. So I certainly don't want to say it doesn't exist or that it's a fiction, but having looked at the data, uh, having looked at people's actual search patterns, there's not evidence of a large number of people out there that are just looking at porn all day long, uh, every day. They're, they're, they're there. It's just it's such a small fraction uh, and not the typical pattern that we see in, in porn usage uh, at all. So it's, again, if this is, if this is a common feature of porn watching, if this is an inevitable feature of porn watching, that porn simply causes addiction well, we should see, it should be very obvious. We just look at the search histories, we look at the search patterns, and we should see this happening the majority of the time, and, and, and we don't. It's, it's very rare that you see somebody that's just looking at porn day after day after day. And again, I already talked about how there's no evidence that people are looking for more and more intense stuff. Uh, so you do, there are people that are searching for porn every day. Yeah, they're, they're out there. It's just it's a tiny fraction uh, overall. So I think, you know, it, some people have an easier tendency to get addicted to certain things than, than other people. Uh, some people get addicted to video games, but not everybody gets addicted to video games. So it certainly can happen, but I definitely, definitely feel confident saying that uh, fears of porn addiction are, are, are overblown. Yeah, I think there's a, just a big crusade in America today to uh, get rid of every every vice that I like. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
are every vice that a lot of people like. I mean, if we start looking at the use of illicit drugs, the vast majority of people are recreational users. They're not addicted users. Most people that look at porn look recreationally. Um, they're not addicted users. Most people even that like to get drunk now and then, uh, they're not addicted to alcohol. They just like to get intoxicated now and then. So uh, it's, it's a really strange puritanism that's been very dominant in our culture lately. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of individual variation. And I wouldn't want, I mean, it seems plausible to me, and I've seen some data that suggests, you know, there's some people that just seem, unfortunately, to be predisposed towards getting addicted. But it sure seems to me that the majority of cases, in any domain, you know, whether you're talking about uh, video games or, or, or porn or, or uh, drinking or what have you, really just comes down to individual uh, maturity and responsibility and, and learning to set your limits and just things that have to do with developing maturity and self-understanding and, and things like that. It's certainly not the case that uh, there's not something inherent in pornography that if you watch it, it's going to do something to your brain that makes you want more and more and not be able to put it down. Uh, I just think that some people have a harder time managing uh, those, the kind of emotions that go along with that and certainly you know, like to give those people help and, and not say that it's not existing not saying that they're not having trouble with it, but uh, I, I would really put, you know, the, the, where the treatment should focus on, on the person rather than the pornography itself. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, definitely I believe that there are some people for some activities that they will find abstinence from those activities to be their best choice. As I've said many times, uh, I've chosen total abstinence from two activities I used to be addicted to. One was smoking cigarettes. I don't want to be an occasional mm. smoker of cigarettes. I like a mm. cigar now and then, a cigar now and then, but that's a totally different thing. The other is television. I don't allow one in my house because I completely lose control and watch crap all day mm. long. And I'm just too, I'm too addicted to it to really want one around. So for me, the best solution there is abstinence. I can look and, at some. And, mm -hmm. and there you, 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 you had self-understanding, you know, so you realize, you know what, I can't, I can't control myself with these. You know, there's, there's no such thing as just having a few cigarettes. There's no such thing as just having a little TV. I'm not capable of it, and you made the, you know, a wise and sensible choice to just cut it out of your life. I think that's part of it, too, is, to, you know, sometimes we need to have that maturity and wisdom to, to know our limits on certain things. Yeah, it's just too damn much work to try and control it. I mean, if you gave me $100... Yeah. If you gave me $100 a day to, watch, to smoke one cigarette a day or watch one TV show a day, I'm sure I could do it. But with the, without that monetary incentive, I, it's really way too much work to try to smoke one cigarette a day and stop. <laughs> well, we're running out I commend of time. You your, I commend you on your uh, insight and maturity. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Well, we're running out of time, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Ogi Ogas. Sure. Time. It was lots of fun. Everybody will be back next week with another show. So everyone, thank you and good night. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.